0: Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon.
1: We're joined on the star line by Jake Brown, author of over 50 books over the last 20 years. He's covered interviews with record producers and much more. His 50th book is Behind the Boards Nashville. We welcome Jake Brown.
0: Hey, thank you for having me on.
1: Let's go Beyond the Mic, Jake. Do you remember the first album that you ever got and which song did you play to death?
0: Oh, that would be Beat It on Michael Jackson's Thriller. No question. Had a babysitter. Who left her records at our house because her parents were like super Christian or whatever. And so I had a shout at the devil eight years old. I had like shout at the devil by Motley Crue, Van Halen 1984, you know, Prince Purple Rain and just some sort of seminal eighties records that, you know, also being raised in the as an eighties baby at the MTV era five to 15. I mean, I saw music was just all around me. Also seeing live concerts back then for 20 bucks, you know, in junior high and up, you could, you know, go and see uh, for 20 bucks on a Friday night, you could go see anybody. It was just an amazing time to absorb music. But I started young, definitely with Michael Jackson and then Eddie Van Halen out of that song, became a huge Van Halen fan. And then there's some others, but those were kind of the first two huge impression bands on me. 1984 to me was like 2001 as a movie was for some
1: people. Now how did your parents encourage your love of music?
0: One of the reasons I, I think I'm Good at writing the types of book I do is that because I relate directly to the people as a musician of seven instruments. Um, I'm a by player. I started out on like piano at uh, five or six, and then went to drums and bass and guitar and beyond. And so my parents, Jim and Tina Brown. Extraordinarily supportive. My mother's a painter, got two master's degrees from WashU while I was growing up. So there was also a little record store called Vintage Vinyl. From about fourth grade on, I could ride my bike across that campus, and it's safer back then, at a different time, and go to that store and I could pick up cutouts and I'd bring them home of every different variety of band. And you had Casey's Top 40. So they encouraged me, you know, I think MTV in the organic sense that back then you were playing the instrument and going, look, Mom, look at this song. And then, hey, can I go see that concert? You know what I mean? And I used it as a bargaining chip as much as possible. And then when I got old enough to go to mosh pit shows, back then 930 Club in D.C. where I went to high school and in St. Louis River you know, Riverfront uh, down there, Mississippi Nights, you could go see a band and kind of get exposed to the live side of what these songs did to people. Beastie Boys and all the 1990s in high school I had with them ballapaloozas and other things. So I was just an amazing time to grow up. And I write about it and with a lot of those groups today. What
1: instrument were you the best at? What instrument were you the worst at growing up?
0: Uh, well, I was a I was a uh, piano player from about six on. I had a wonderful teacher named Mr. Robinson. I studied at a classical music conservatory in high school for piano, and I was their only by-ear player. Valerica Meikon was my instructor. And then I started playing drums. My my papa Armand, Amy, rest in peace, gave me my first drum set. He was a clown after he retired and he had a kick drum and a, uh, and a bass drum, like a four tom. So in, in like sixth or seventh grade in the basement, I started kind of banging on those and so that evolved into a full set. I always played bass growing up because it was sort of easy and around and you could play bass on someone else's guitar. and I moved out to LA after college and got into a band out there, but I was also making demos like kind of my own Playing everything in college and so just but just even that's what I mean I don't in any way want to compare it to the guys that I write with because of where their success levels are but I organically know what like a four track is <laughs> bouncing three tracks down to the four so you have another three that are free and things like that and just back when it was analog and in this book there's amazing journeys of people who came here like you know Tony Brown was Elvis Presley's You know, last piano player, Norbert Putnam was his bass player, and they started out in the session world. Paul Worley, Dan Huff, James Stroud is a drummer. And then these guys learned producing organically from the other side of the board. And then when they got over to that side of the board, they were able to communicate with these session bands and, and, uh, you know, other players, the artists. They were the stars they produced because they'd been musicians. I definitely am a little bit more able to talk the language and kind of get nerdy about certain things because I understand how those sides of the business work, I guess. And musically, how, you know, kind of that whole side of the thing that that mind works.
1: Where did you get the inspiration for the Nashville edition of Behind the Boards?
0: Uh, that's an interesting question. I had done a series. I had the Joe Satriani Strange Beautiful Music Memoir come out in 2014, and that was an enormously successful book as for me, very lucky as, a, as an author. And it kind of gave me uh, carte blanche on my next book, for that same publisher, and I had already sold them on National Songwriter, which was the first it, sort of seed to do this book. And basically, National Songwriter was the first book series of its kind. It focuses on the songwriters that un, it's kind of the unsung heroes of country music along with the producers, a lot of the stars that you have these all these huge hits by are actually written by these songwriters. It's an incredible machine, but it's a very human, down-to-earth, down-home, you know, the houses that these people write in are literal houses on the, on the streets called Music Row uh, in a lot of cases. So it just it was a really special, kind of different... I'd never, ever, ever written a book like that with the backdrop of writing it was so different from your typical recording studios and things like that. It was just, it gave me a real... Because the first 10 years I lived here, I was a rock writer and hip-hop writer, so I didn't really interface with country. And at the time I then started to do it, I was at enough of a level where I could get access to a lot of these people, and I just proved to be the most down-to-earth people in the world. So that led me to meet some of the people that wound up in this book, like Shane McNally and Chris Stefano and Luke Laird and Ross Copperman. And then my dog died in 2018, uh, Rest in Peace Hanover, by Cocker Spaniel and my wife and I were devastated and I needed something to pull me out of a really serious depression. And I thought, why not relaunch the Behind the Boards series, but do a country producer. Then like Dave Cobb was the first guy to sign on. Man. And Dave Cobb is like a, you know, hero of mine modernly. You know, he's amazing. He's like the Rick Rubin of this generation. It's Chris Stapleton, Shooter Jennings and Jason Isbell and Sturgill Simpson and the song, the Star is Born soundtracks in this book. So that kind of led to, once the word of mouth got going, Dan Hoff signed up and um, I already had Jesse Frazier and Zach Crowell from the National Songwriter Series, and those guys do Sam Hunt and um, Thomas Rhett. And I tell you, the ones though that were a little bit harder work, to be honest, Jim Ed Norman, uh, who of course is like "Born to Boogie" by Hank Williams uh, Jr. and others, he really doesn't like doing interviews, and I had to get some help. From other producers to get some of these guys, Buddy Cannon, Paul Worley was a great asset to me. But you know, you started expanding it, and it just spirals outward, and word of mouth gets out. And, and then I had late editions. I mean, I was interviewing Tony Brown, who's George Straight's producer, February of this year, right before the COVID shutdown. Frank Rogers, Brad Paisley's longtime producer, Buddy Cannon and others. So my point is that it just became a two-year kind of, it um, wasn't a marathon, but I mean, some of these conversations, some of these chapters are 45 pages long. And so I talked to these guys. I talked to Dave Cobb two or three times over several years. Michael Knox, Jason Aldean's producer, and I spent comprehensive time. Great example. Taylor Swift's producer, Nathan Chapman, you know, we sat there and went word by word and line by line to get it exactly how he wanted it. And that was important to me too, that all of the 30 producers in this book, for the most part, were either given the opportunity and most read and approved uh, their chapters in advance and gave me input and tweaked them. And so we really feel like it's their story as well as the story behind their, you know, the greatest hits they produced for these country stars.
1: Producers stay behind the scenes. They make the magic. They're probably one of the most important people that you don't really get to see. How difficult was it to get these producers to open it up? And was it easier with each opportunity you had to talk with them?
0: You know, to be honest, yeah, not that challenging for the most part. Shane McNally had some demands on his time, understandably. So my access to him was a little bit more kind of, this is the conversation. And then I did a follow-up by phone with him as well. You know, I talked to Tony Brown several times. I talked to Michael Knox several times. I talked to Byron Gallimore for about three hours. We just did that in one shot. James Stroud and I talked for about three hours, broken up over two. And the deal I made with all of these uh, amazing guys is, is that I was going to um, give them as much time as they wanted to tell their entire story and talk about specifics in particular, you know, a lot of it took the time it took because these guys in some cases common threads throughout the book have been with these stars since the beginning to now, 25 years, in case of Tim McGraw and Byron Gallimore, uh, 15 years, Michael Knox and Jason Aldean, Tony Brown and, and um, George Strait were together for 22 plus. But my point is, um, take all of that time to go through that catalog, Luke Brian, Jeff, and Jody Stevens. We went song by song. So, if you're a country fan, you know, it's 300 number ones in this book. Once you get these guys talking, I mean, they like to talk shop, you know? And I think, to be fair, a lot of producers don't get the credit they deserve. And so I think, you know, the concept that if they're signing up to kind of go in, in depth and, and they kind of want to talk shop anyway, and you can weave the human story within that of the struggle, because that's the other side of it. I wanted to tell them, I said, look, this isn't like fluff. I don't want one page on your background. You know, I want to know your struggles and how long it took you to get here and get your first hit or get your first gig as a session player or, you know, who how you got fired and your wife and kids were, you know, months from eviction. And then Jeff Stevens became a songwriter that way. I mean, after years of, of kind of getting a record deal and having to go nowhere and Paul Worley was a session player for years. So there's just some really amazing stories of perseverance and inspirational stories of that because there isn't a producer in this book that it came easy to Shane McNally came here in 2000 and had a solo album. that flopped. I mean, Ross Copperman and Jimmy Robbins who are both in this book were artists, you know, uh, Ray Riddle, who was Big Smo, country rapper's uh, uh, producer and DJ for years. I mean, it took 10 years for them to get the country living in the Warner deal. I mean, so there's a lot of different examples of that, where you have these sort of long-term investments that these producers made. And, and I think it makes them proud to be able to reflect back on it. So we didn't have too much trouble.
1: Jake Brown is author of Behind the Boards, Nashville, and he joins us beyond the mic. Which one of these stories is your favorite one of the book?
0: <laughs> well, I'll tell you my favorite story of the entire book. It involves Tony Brown and the uh, "How Do I Live" from Con Air. He was at like eleven o'clock at night on a Sunday night after being out in LA for something else. Brought over to uh, Jerry Bruckheimer's office, and Jerry Bruckheimer said, "Look, I've got one version of the song that Leon Rhymes did for one part or the front of the movie. I want another for the final scene." And he showed him like the whole dailies, you know, of the plane crash and Las Vegas trip and everything. And he said, "I need it in two He said, "I need it in two days."
1: Two days?
0: Oh yeah. And Tony Brown looked at him like, okay, um, and he said, yeah, he said, I, two days. So Tony Brown flew back on a red eye, and he got Trisha Yearwood in the studio the next day with the band, and that just shows you how professional these ends are here, too. Amazing, best session players in the world, best songwriters in the world that live in Nashville, best record producers in a lot of cases anyway. Uh, or among them, uh, they 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 get everything done. Jerry Bruckheimer has like a setup where he can sit in his office and listen to the session live, so he can almost be there at the console. Talk about being behind the boards with Tony, and uh, they basically knocked this song out. And then Don Huff, Dan Huff's father, came in and did strings the next day, and they delivered it in 48 hours. And then it wound up becoming a competitive single. There was it was one of the first times and only times because there's a history in country music of songs getting re-recorded over the generations. But this was one of the only times at the same time there were two versions of How Do I Live that were battling on the charts and both wound up uh, you know getting nominated for Grammys and winning different categories at the CM you know the country awards and so it was just a really funny sort of example of, of also how professional you have to be to be able to pull that off. Frank Rogers, Brad Paisley's longtime producer, Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish. They were making Darius's first country record. He comes in, and you know, in an afternoon, they knock out you know three or four you know finished songs, and three of them became number one. And Frank said Darius was sitting there looking at him at the end of it, going, "Man, in Hootie, we would just be getting drum sounds, and yeah, you guys are so on it that you're like knocking these out in an afternoon. So just the rapidity, the the, the huge, the fast, fast speed." which these guys have to move. Over the last
1: 50 books, what was the biggest challenge in getting people to talk to you?
0: Uh, I got lucky in that regard um, because I started with the Producers series and I had this very fortunate um, thing with Tupac Shakur as state, authorizing a Tupac in the Studio, which is another series I write. That led to Heart in the Studio, which I wrote with and Nancy Wilson, and then Motorhead in the Studio, which I wrote with Lemmy Kilmeister, uh, rest in peace. So that series has like everyone from Rick Rubin to Dr. Dre, to Tori Amos and Tom Waits, AC/DC, Iron Maiden. That was sort of gave me a name as a writer of behind-the-scenes, kind of how records are made, and fortunately also because there's an academic slant to this series, and SAE and, and and a lot of the, most of the music schools thankfully have at least a couple of my books in their libraries because they're just a tech, technical reference, <laughs> and that was the case with Rick Rubin and Behind the Boards actually for SAE here locally, but that led to Joe Satriani. I went and found his manager's email and, and hit him up, and I wanted to write it in the studio book with him. And instead it turned into this amazing uh, musical memoir that had stories behind how all of his records are made and how he comes up with all of his otherworldly solos or surfing with the alien on and and Summer Song and et cetera. So it just kind of, I don't really, that answer isn't like a sort, I didn't like camp outside their tour buses. I just, if you do this long enough and you, and I feel like one proud thing I've got is a thread that that weaves throughout my whole catalog is I've, I've never used an anonymous source. I've always endeavored to make sure that the people that I do interview take up the majority of the time that they're on the page and that what we talk about is of importance to them in the sense of like, I'm not going to ask about, you know, like James Addiction. We did a Beyond the Beats, a rock Drummers series. I do the first book that had, uh, it's called Drummers, and one of them was James Addiction's drummer, Steve Perkins. And we spent 20 minutes talking about this very famous song of theirs called Three Days and how it was constructed. And it was amazing to me that he wanted to talk for twenty minutes about that song because I love that song. And I know everyone that read it liked it because they just did such an amazing performance. But that's what I mean. If you let a drummer talk for twenty minutes about one song, they tend to trust you that you're gonna let them kind of tell their full story. And that book had, you know, the drummers from Motley Crue, Metallica, Aerosmith, Journey, Credence, Clearwater Revival, Bon Jovi. Right, out Chili Peppers. I'm just trying to cover them Foo Fighters. It was a, it was such an amazing collection. And, and Volume 2, which comes out in a couple of years, has 30 more of them. The Police, uh, Flash, Iron Maiden, you know, all down the line. So I, I just try to like really let them know that they're going to be able to tell their full story. And that usually kind of opens the gate. There's a Joey Kramer Aerosmith interview. So th- he was in that book as well. That's the name I was trying to bend in Taylor Hawkins and the Foo Fighters. But when I was talking to, you know, when I got the word that Joey Kramer was going to do it, I thought, wow, that's a real honor. because I grew up trying to play Aerosmith records and you know, love them and love Aerosmith and like everybody does. And so when we start talking, I'm all excited. And he's like, yeah, man, ask me whatever you want, you know? And so we start, t- we start talking about beats and we go through Walk This Way and we go through Back in the Saddle and we go through, I don't know, five or six of their, thankfully I asked about, the, it was tip the rule of thumb if you're interviewing and you're new to it, always ask about the sort of bigger hits first because they be, some of these guys run out of steam. Some love to talk for hours, but some run out of steam, and don't like to talk about it. So we get about seven beats in, and, and, he, and I'm like, "Oh, that's so cool!" You know, in that part that dropped out when you went down with the toms and were so talking about it, back in the saddle, and we got to him, and he goes, "Hey, hey, Jake, man, enough about the song, enough about the songs," and and I was like, "I was, I like, was sorry, excuse me," because I didn't understand what he had, had said at first, you know. And he goes, "Enough about the songs, man." I don't want, I think we've covered the songs <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. You know, it was a kind of a, a pivot uh, that was unusual because it, most people want to talk about that, but that gives you another example. If you're going to be writing books or you're going to be like writing songs, you have to come with a lot of ideas. You have to be able to have a lot of questions ready. So we still had to make up 50 more minutes. That was like an hour one. Sometimes you get the opposite. I don't get that very often. That was a, a kind of a one-off because but it was Joey Kramer. So you're, you're not going to say, uh, well, all right, well, thank you for your time. So then we shifted into talking about playing live and, you know, kind of improvised it. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and, and, you know, Jay Maskets from Dinosaur Jr. was in one of the first behind-the-boards books. He's a real uh, buttoned-up kind of, you know, you really have to kind of pull, you know, a little to get him to open up. And then once he does, you know, he'll, he'll talk for a long time. But anyway, so if Billy Corgan was one that I worked pretty hard to get from Smashing Pumpkins to uh, do a tape-up story with me, I had to really promise him we weren't going to turn it into a book or try to, you know? and then he opened up and talked about all of his records and how he made them it was amazing it was, it's just there's different ways to approach different artists that depending on what you're kind of also it's sometimes you're talking to them about someone else's book so it's easier for them to talk you're not talking about themselves
1: I remember editing tape and audio with razor blade and tape in the old days <laughs> yep. of radio analog good old analog how has that change made producing
0: yeah. better or worse with technology that's a very interesting question and I've answered that twice today and my answers have kind of evolved with each. I So I have the best answer for you because uh, this is the one I was looking. I love these other ones, but I was looking really forward to this show. So any producer that was going to fight the inevitable <laughs> of having to format over to digital where you have virtual tracks, it changed It revolutionized recording. And, you know, the upside of it is that it made it easier and quicker. The downside of it is that there's a generation of kids that have grown up using samples that are really great that come from someone else that actually recorded that. And so as an example, in this book, we try to really go into detail without being too nerdy to where if you want to know what your reference points for like, how did that get that Tim McGraw sound on that drum kit? Well, what does Byron Gallimore use on it? Well, I like an RE20 on the kick drum. Dave Cobb can tell you about a certain room sound and the old school techniques he still goes by. So. The mix today is a hybrid. Dave Cobb is a great example of that. He's extraordinarily talented at it because he'll take one mic and record a Grammy-winning record. A lot of it's in the ears of the producer, but it also is a definite balance. Don't try to work in the record business today if you don't know how to use logic approachables, period. Producers really today need to be able to play an instrument, even if it's just you know a few chords on a guitar, because it makes it... A lot of the guys in this book started out as session players, so they were from the other side of the glass learning how good producers and they'll say not so good producers worked and who they could understand the more times than not they were musicians themselves the musical side of it but also it's a hybrid you know Jeff and Jody Stevens have produced Luke Bryan that's a father-son team and Jody came from hip-hop and it fit it blended beautifully but you also have track guys and we've got pretty much all the top track guys in this book Chris Stefano, Luke Laird, Zach Crowell, Ray Riddle there's a bunch of them, and they all adhere to that same thing where they can walk into a, a writing session with a, a demo they put together. Chris Estefano did that with Carrie Underwood in one case, and what you hear on the radio is pretty much his demo. So, And they do the whole song. We Joey Moy with Florida Georgia Line, where they'll build out the entire drums, the bass, the guitar. They play all the instruments themselves, and then just say, bring in a fiddle player or a dobro player. That's an extraordinarily talented group of people, Ross Copperman, and others that are doing that. Jesse Frazier, Jimmy Robbins fit in that club, and and others. That's the mix, I guess, is the hybrid. The smart producers that stay hanging around, especially the ones in this book that have worked, say, for 25 years with the same artist, like a Byron Gallimore Tim McGraw, or a Kenny Chesney, Buddy Cannon, or a uh, Tony Brown, George Strait, or whomever it was, but Jeff Stevens, Luke Bryan, when that artist says, I want to head in a new direction, that producer's got to be able to adapt to it, too, you know what I mean, in order to survive. Clint Black's a real great example. We had the honor of having Clint Black in the book, and he produces all his own records. So sometimes these artists get so good at it, they become co producers. And pretty much, you know, most guys in this book told me, like, man, if this guy wants to be my co producer and he's my boss, I'm pretty much going to just let him. I mean, but they actually turn out to be legitimate, you know, producers, and they learn under these guys' wing and then become. You know, Brad Paisley went out on his own after 15 years under learning with Frank Rogers. They had gone to college together. And then also another thing, you know, Belmont University should deserve some credit. They had this amazing intern program and a studio where a lot of these guys, uh, a fair number of them, and songwriters especially, went. And they networked and were in classes. Brad Paisley and Frank Rogers were classmates. You get these stories. Tim McGraw and Byron Gallimore started out together when, when he was really, you know, a nobody. I mean, hadn't made his name in the town yet and so forth. So you really get the inspiring stories, too, of the trust and loyalty and the long-term connection. And that's the other thing within country that's so unique is that trust factor. Bear in mind, a guy like Michael Knox, produces Jason Aldean, he listens to 2,000 songs between every record. George Strait's producer said they were listening to 3,000 songs to whittle it down to the 15 that the fans hear and the 30 or 50 that George picks from. So, I mean, think of the trust that an artist wants, needs, needs to place in that producer with his career to say, you pick the ones you think sound like, you know, so Josh Leo, Alabama's producer talks about throwing cassette tapes in the back of his car in the 80s. He'd be driving to and from sessions, listening to song after song, because that's how they recorded them back then. So, uh, they really, you you have to wear a lot of hats, to answer your question. It's definitely a mix of a lot of things.
1: Jake Brown, author of Behind the Boards Nashville. We're going beyond the mic. You brought up Frank Rogers, who produced Brad Pacey's early work being the first overdubber.
0: when him and Brad Paisley, and that's an interesting story because a lot of what you heard on that first record and a lot of part two, the fishing song, all of those big early hits, he didn't have to be and etc. Those were demos. Those were done, and a lot of times Frank was the guy who was sitting in there, not only recording, but then adding guitar parts over top. And there's certain Brad Paisley songs, they escape me, where he had to go in and do overdubs even at the last minute just to get it right. He was an incredible guitar player. Paul Worley as well, and Dan Huff. These are some of the top historic guitar players, session players in town. So, you know, you also kind of really get a really rich history of Nashville in this book. Uh, Talks about studios that maybe aren't even here anymore. Talks about old nightclubs. And there's a really funny story from Ray Baker about Tootsie's. You know, Tootsie's is a downtown Nashville, now very famous, world-famous sort of tourist bar. Back in the day, it was where songwriters would come in between their Opry sets and stars. And, hey, who are you recording Tuesday? And -and so-and-so would record, you know, a song these guys had. And Tootsie would walk around with a hairpin at midnight and poke everyone in the butt. Of their jeans with her hairpin, if they hadn't gotten up when she gave them the warning that they were closing at 12. And I mean, just little things like that. You know, I still got a sort, you know, behind. I mean, just the funny humor and the camaraderie and the amazing organic way that a lot of these people made their way to the producer seats that they now sit in today.
1: You bring up Paul Worley. Another favorite from the book was Paul working with Martina McBride on Independence Day. Yeah. Having her sing the chorus a cappella before the band came even to play one note, one verse. One thing, she was singing an a cappella.
0: Yeah, well, and importantly, to a guy like Paul and a song like that, you know, that went on to become, that was a happy accident that actually went on to become a thing with the crowd where they would sing that to her with her before she would start the song. And that was a controversial song. You I mean, think about the, the subject matter, that song, a, a woman that burns down, you know, I mean, if you know the history of the song, it's got a kind of violent ending. And it, it was, it was really, really a cutting edge thing. And that shows you the incredible A&R instinct that even a guy like Paul Worley, who's also a record label, head, signed Big and Rich, he signed Lady Annabellum, now Lady A, he signed... And Perry, you know, he signed the Dixie Chicks and produced them. Just the incredible amount of just like radar they have to constantly keep in the air for that kind of thing. And then also when they get into the studio and they're doing those warm ups, there's little, there's so many lessons in this book about the record making process and record the record the rehearsal is what you're getting at and then also if you have to do it a hundred times they do it a hundred times you know and you mentioned tape editing or taping you know sort of the, the the old way to do it with Pro Tools the upside is you can record more but the downside is now you got to go through a hundred takes when it might have been just 10 20 years ago you know uh to get the perfect one and then other kinds people come in and they knock them out in the first one You get amazing vocalists like uh, Carrie Underwood and Miranda Lambert and Faith Hill and god on and on Casey Musgraves that just come in and and seeing it so good in the demo that that demo is the keeper extraordinary town extraordinary book and this this book's really a love letter to my hometown i've lived here 18 years and met my wife here and i'm really honored that the 50th book of whatever it could be that it was a book about nashville and specifically about record producers it's definitely overdue and i'm really glad that uh hopefully people enjoy it um they gotta you know if you want to just stream along and listen to just Want to read about how a song was particularly recorded, like "Live Like You Were Dying" by you know Tim McGraw or whomever? Uh, that is a really cool interactive feature too. There's an ebook, there's an audio book, the Blackstone Audio. That's two volumes. Physical book will be out in the next few weeks. So definitely, there's you can get it any way you want to hear it.
1: Time's running out, so it's time for the Rocky Nate eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your Delighting
0: mind. round. <laughs> yeah.
1: There is no pressure. Favorite music to write to. Prince. Favorite movie of all time.
0: Oh, man. Uh, Heat. Robert De Niro Al Pacino. We think Robert's seen the coolest ever.
1: (laughs) Now, do you have a uh, favorite uh, comedian?
0: Uh, Bill Hicks and Eddie Murphy.
1: Okay. Who's your favorite Sopranos character?
0: Tony. Hands down.
1: Where was the best place you heard a concert? (sighs) Who was the opening act?
0: Man, so many. Uh, 1980s, I saw the Rolling Stones at Bush Stadium at 13 uh, with Tim Oli. And Living Color was the opening group, and that was a trick.
1: What was the worst movie you've ever seen?
0: Worst movie? Firewalker, starring Chuck Norris and Lou Gossett Jr. First time my dad ever thought, said to me and my brother on a Saturday, he used to take us to movies, all right, boys, let's go spot something else that it was okay to leave a movie if you didn't like it, because it was so bad. Oh, God, it was a bad movie. What's
1: your favorite dessert?
0: Raspberry sorbet ice cream, probably.
1: And what was your first thought when Lady Annabellum changed their name to Lady A? I
0: think it was I think it was a respectable thing to do, uh, given probably the controversy that could consume an otherwise impeccable recording band. They're the you know, the future of country, the present of country, they're they're an amazing group and I'm glad that they were both savvy and also respectful.
1: And Jake, where can people find more information about your books?
0: So you can go to Jake Brown Books, dot com, or uh, Twitter, the same thing, Jake Brown Book. Behind the Boards dot com, are all three. There's an Amazon Central page, but uh, thankfully uh, uh, we've been fortunate with some of the coverage uh, in the country media press. So there's also, you could Google the title, Behind the Boards Nashville, and get some really cool behind-the-scenes stories that were actually put out by American Songwriter Magazine or Parade or whomever. That's also, and also, there's YouTube videos. There's over 100 YouTube videos with producers from the book if you just want to sort of look at it that way. If you're not a reader, we still appreciate anyone that wants to check it out. And then, you know, you can get it at Amazon or Audible. Or-
1: his favorite movie is Heat. He writes Listening to Prince, his 50th book, Behind the Boards nashville is available at a retailer near you jake brown thanks for talking with me today
0: well i'm honored to be on the show and i appreciate it really greatly and i hope you'll consider having me on again in the future and thank you
1: and that my friends is beyond the bike